0: Amen. All right. Well, Genesis, we're, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 10 and 11 this morning. 10 and 11. And I know it sounds intense, but uh, this is a message that I've called Consequences, Pride, and Transitions. And it really is a time of transition. And transitions, as you know, they, they can be really, really tough. You know, it's the the passing, you know, when we're so used to different seasons or times in our life, and then it goes into another season, those things can be really, really heavy. I mean, I think of some of the transitions that we often face, like right now we're in summer, we're going into what, into fall, and then from fall into winter, and then winter into spring, and then summer all over again. And some of those, they can be really rough at times. But I think about other transitions, you know, that we have that, are, that can be hard. I think maybe the transition of a new boss, that can be hard for some, right? Especially if you had a really great boss. Um, you, you know, you're kind of going into the unknown. If you had a really bad boss, then it's like, oh, praise the Lord, finally. <laughs> you know, like, what's, what's that transition going to be like? Um, what about children? Transition with, with, from kids to teenagers and from teenagers to adults, for our family, it's like we've been in transition for years. And I don't think it's going to stop. Like, it's going to keep going forever. Uh, but I'm just kind of curious, non-scientific, you know, poll, uh, which was easier for you guys, kids to teenagers or teenagers to adults? So kids to teenagers, was that easy transition? Yeah? Yeah. What about teenagers to adults? Was that good or bad? Like, up good, bad down? <laughs> it's like, we're going to stay quiet. They're in here. <laughs> It's all, yeah, it's all good. It's all good. What's that? They get hard. And we, you know, and I thought, and here, here's, here's what I'm finding. Now that I'm 46 and I'm in that, I've got the 18-year-old, I thought that when you hit that age, or 18, because that's what I grew up. When you're 18, boy, you're out the house, right? And, but I'm finding that I don't think parenting stops at 18. Like, I think it continues on and on and on and on. And it's good, right? Especially if you have a good relationship with your kids, you know, I think that's, that's a beautiful thing, and, and the other day I started crying, and they were just like, you're just being too drama. I was thinking of like, what about what about grandpa, and I started thinking of my girls having kids. It's like, stop, we haven't even gone there yet. Okay, but still, transitions, you know? <laughs> well, this morning, we're going to be in transition. Chapter 10 and 11 really is a transition to the rest book of Genesis. Now, as we think about transitions, think of a funnel, maybe a funnel that you would use for changing the oil in a car, right? As you look at a funnel, how it comes down, the, the first 10 chapters of the book of Genesis are that big funnel, so to speak, right? It's covering thousands and thousands of years of history and and foundations, right? The the origins of man, the origins of sin, and, 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 and the fall of mankind, redemption, the flood, all these things that are happening over thousands of years. And then if you think of that bottleneck in the funnel, you're going to think about chapter 10 again, But also include chapter 11. There is a transition where now the book of Genesis is starting to to narrow down. And then that long thing that goes into your vehicle, right, that long part of the funnel is the rest of the book of Genesis. From chapters 12 all the way through chapter 50, it zeroes into the life of a man named Abraham or Abram. And then the Bible just follows his life all the way to the end. And in some ways, why? Well, it's because we're seeing the transition of the fall of mankind into the redemption of mankind. And really, we focus on the story of Jesus. It's really what it does, it's pointing all to Jesus, redemption for, for mankind. And so this morning, we're going to look at a message they've entitled Consequences, Pride and transitions. And you could add a little sub there. Transitions of hope is really what it is. So let's look at chapter 10. Now again, just so that you're not fearful, we're not going to read all of chapter 10. We are going to come into verse 6, right? Chapter 10 is, is speaking out of the descendants of Noah, of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, right? But for the message and where I believe the Lord would have us to go, we're going to pick up in verse 6. I would say on your own, spend, those, uh, spend some time this week just reading all of chapter 10 and all of chapter 11. It is good, and there are names there and genealogies, and this guy begat that guy, and they're good to, t- to take in. But we're going to focus on verse 6, and look what happens here. So the sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. And the sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Seb. Now, again, some of these I'm going to mis I've practiced and practiced, but some of that Hispanic accent comes out, and I think I mess it up, okay? So bear with me and have grace on me, okay? Or have mercy on me. So the sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, Sabqata, <laughs> and the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like N- Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And from that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kela, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kela, that is, the principal city. Mizraim begot Ludim and Anamim, uh, uh, Lehabim, Neftuhim, Pathrusim, and Kasluhim, and from whom came the Philistines and Kaphtorim. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, Heth, and the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sinite, the Arvadite, the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed, and the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go toward Gerar as far as Gaza, then as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These were the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. And then he goes into Shem and kind of gives into this another detail of his family. But then he revisits Shem at the end, or at the beginning of chapter 11. And that's why, you know, we were just kind of reading through these. Now, as we look at and why we focus on Ham, is because you're going to see that in chapters 10 and 11, we're dealing with Ham, but we also then focus on many of you know this story, the Tower of Babel that we'll get into. Now the problem with Ham and what we're seeing here in my first point on this message is really speaking about consequences. See that's that's the thing about sin. Remember Ham was cursed because why? Well, what would happen last time with Noah? Remember Noah got drunk, he was all messed up. And then Ham came and did something to to, to know. We don't know what it was, but more than anything, he exposed him and brought shame on his sin. He pointed to his sin, highlighted to the point that it caused shame in the family, and then the curse went down on Ham. And Ham's family after him would be cursed. And so we find in the middle of that that there's consequences for his action. There's consequences for the sin of Ham. Now, oftentimes, we like to think of consequences in terms of punishment, right? You do the crime, do the time, etc. But other times in Scripture, we find there's different forms of consequences. See, again, remember, Noah sinned, he got drunk, he blew it, but his two sons covered his shame. And because of Noah's track record, I, I believe that we can assume that he repented, right? That was the character of Noah, over his lifetime, right? He was a preacher of righteousness, preaching the, the gospel in that sense of, like, judgment is coming. We need to abandon. Noah had a moment of slip. After that, we don't hear anything about Noah, but we do hear a lot about Ham and his consequence and what he went through. See, because Ham sinned after the fact. And his consequences, they weren't necessarily immediate, Right? Instead, they had lasting effects on his son and his generations. So I believe it's safe to say that, that Ham didn't repent. Right? I believe that based on God's character, if he had, things would have changed. But Ham didn't repent. And so then the consequences of his hand hit hard, and sin produced generations of wickedness and rebellion against God. Now, again, I, I know in the 90s, especially in the late 90s, when I first became a Christian, there was this real big thing about generational cursing and all this kind of stuff. I believe it's hogwash. But there is something to say that if we produce a life of sin, if we produce a life where we're just not owning our sin and our consequences, well, what's going to happen is that those traits that we take on, if not displayed in a spirit of humility, it's, it's going to keep on. We're going to have a family that begins to learn what to do when it comes to sin and rebellion and so forth. And we find in Ham, as part of his curse, that he lived a life of rebellion. He lived a life of rebellion, and it produced generations and generations of sin and unbrokenness. Right, Rather than being a people that were broken, they were a people that were rebellious, that, that really culminated in what we'll see in chapter 11 with this man Nimrod. Okay? So just look at some of the things. And here, here's why I say this. Well, look at some of the families that came right from the family of Ham. Just a few stand out. Because as you look at some of these families, they actually would become the enemies of God, and in some cases, a thorn in the flesh to the people of God. Let's just look at a few. Look at verse 6, right? Verse 6, we have the mention of Mizraim. Well, what's, what's big about Mizraim? Well, You can jot this down. I'll read it to you if you'd like. This is Psalm 105, verse 23 and 24. Listen to this. So Israel, right, also came into Egypt, and Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham. He increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies, And he turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Now, here's just a description of what went on in Egypt and the Exodus and so forth. But right there, you have another clue that from the land of Ham, from this person, Mizraim, came the Egyptians. That's one big family that came from Ham's rebellion. And we know what happens with the Egyptians, right? I mean, God's people would spend hundreds of years in, 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 and really captive by the Egyptians and it it would take 10 plagues for God to finally free his people out of that. So there, one of the first consequences you see is the Egyptians, right? These people that were rebellious towards God's people. The second thing you see in verse 8 is Nimrod. And, And again, we've been saying his name quite a bit, but he was the founder of Babel or the Tower of Babel. He was a hunter of wild beasts. You know, it's interesting, his name means let us rebel. That's what his name means. So it wasn't like when they say he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, right, and you're like, oh, that's good, right, because he's hunting and maybe taking care of food and so forth. No, the, 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 the original language and the heart behind it, when you look at chapter 11, as in some commentators even w- would say that he was actually like, like the original Hunger Games guy. So if any of you have seen the Hunger Games, right, they're like hunting people. Nimrod was known to be that kind of a guy, that his sport was to hunt, and to bring fear into mankind. That's how he actually began to build the Tower of Babel with tyranny and fear and violence. This is another. This is the grandson of Ham, right? Then we have Nineveh. Nineveh is another messed up city. How do we know about Nineveh? Do you guys remember Nineveh? From what? The Book of Jonah, right? God said, now don't, don't get me wrong, in all these places, God always has a remnant of people, to come in and preach the gospel. But we know it from the book of Jonah, where God sent Jonah into Nineveh. And what did Jonah want to do? He did not want to preach to Nineveh. Why? Because they were a wicked and messed up people. One of the things they would do, and I remember this when I taught this years ago, um, is that Nineveh, for torture, to torture people, they would take people and find a set of palm trees, ideally four, and they would tie the legs and feet of their prisoners to the four corners of those palm trees, right? They would bring the palm trees down, tie up their arms and legs, and then fling, and then pfft, break them apart. Like that was the violence of Nineveh. And Jonah was like, I don't want to save those guys. No way. Like I'm not going in there to preach. But this was once again the fruit of Ham. The Philistines. Who doesn't know the Philistines and all this? Remember the Philistines? Who were they? The first thing that comes to mind from the Philistines What's that? Yeah, Goliath, right? Goliath and King David, right? Who is this Philistine that would come against the armies of God? Remember, and David went and had to take him out. Even before that, we have Samson and Delilah, if you remember, right? Once again, another family that was just at odds with the people of God. And then after that, we have all these ites, right? The Jebusites and the Amorites and the Girgashites and the Hivites and the Archites and the Sidonites and there's all these things that became mites to the people of God, right? There was just a constant thorn in the flesh in the land of Canaan. Now, you remember later on, Isaac and Rebekah, and the story of Isaac and Rebekah, remember when Rebekah wanted to send Jacob away, what was the clear direction? Go away, because I don't want you to marry any of the gals from the land of Canaan. Like, those, gay, those gals are not good for you. Right, And so she pushed him away. And so when we look at all these things, all these groups of people, they all come from the line of Ham. They all come from this one man who rebelled against God. See, that's, again, the thing about sin. Without repentance, there's no stopping the consequence and the depths that sin will take you. These are the consequences of sin of sin and ham. You know, oftentimes, especially over the years, and I've had to become a little bit more selective over the years, right, of how I shared my testimony, especially with our youth and just things like that. Because oftentimes what will happen is that you look at a testimony like mine, and, and, and many of you know, right, in my younger years, I'm, you know, I was, I was selling drugs, I was working at a head shop and all these kinds of things, and I've had my, my run-ins with the law and so forth. But I came out unscathed, if you will, at least from the world standards. And that I didn't go to jail where I was never, you know, put, you know, never arrested or anything like that at all. Unscathed. And so we can look at those things and say, hey, I mean he got out alive. It's fine. But that's not always the case with everyone. God had a plan for my life. God was working in my life. And I eventually came to a place of brokenness and repentance. Ultimately, when, I, when, when the Lord Jesus saved me and found me and rescued me. But by and large, as we look at the life here of Ham, we see a life that's just unwilling to yield to the Lord. And the fruit that it produces You know, that was the lie that I told myself one time when I got busted with weed at at my parents' house. My mentality was, I'm not hurting anyone. It's just me. It's just my thing. And we don't realize that our standing in our community or in our families, that the reach that we have goes far and wide. And sometimes we think, well, because I didn't see immediate consequences, then it's okay. But the reality, is, some of these consequences, they don't surface until years down the road. You know when they surface to me? When I got married. And all this messed up way of thinking and all this heartache. And, and even as I got older, I remember, you know, years. I mean, I had already been clean um, for almost, I don't know, seven, eight years now at this point. And I remember we had a guy who was working at a Christian academy and um, um, we had a guy from the Army, because a military chur- we're, at, we're in the military chur- church in the sense that the military base was right down the street from our church. So we often had a lot of military families coming. And one time, the school that I worked with at the church, we had one of the, I guess he was a doctor or a counselor at the military, he came out and just, you know, gave a whole spiel to the dangers of drugs and so forth. And he started showing all these images and things like that. And it triggered me. I had to kind of go to the restroom and just take a breather. And I kid you not, I had like these weird things, like the tile just started blurring in front of me. It it started to take me back to when I was an avid user of acid in my younger days. It just triggered me. And all those ways of thinking, those consequences started to affect me when I didn't know how to be a godly man. I didn't know how to be a godly married man because of all the things that started coming up that I didn't have to deal with as a single man. But once I got married, all those things come up. And so the, the point is that oftentimes we, we, we do things, we don't repent, and yet consequences will come. It may not be immediate. It could be down the road. In the case of him, man, talk about a big way. If we don't take care of sin, the next thing that happens is pride comes in. Pride comes in. Look at the next chapter. Look at chapter 11, Genesis 11. This is now brings us to... The Tower of Babel. Well, look at verse 30. And this is like a little, verse 32. It's just a little summary. He says, So these were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. Now, the whole earth had one language. And I'm just going to read these nine verses, and it's so good. Now, the whole earth had one language and one speech. And as it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they have all one language, and this is what they began to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there, and there confuse their language, and they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord scattered them abroad, and from there, over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city." Therefore, its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. And pride. Pride is what happens next in the Tower of the Babel, right? The, the world began to grow but they didn't do what the Lord told them to do. Remember back in chapter 9, verse 1? What was the command that God gave to Noah as they were exiting the ark? Do any of you guys remember that? What's that? Yeah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right? And what did they do? Man, let's gather here. They all gathered in one place and in one location, and they began to grow under, we'll find out in a second, the leadership of Nimrod, one language. Now, this is pretty crazy because here, you know, you find the entire earth at this point was speaking one language. Now, now today we look at languages and we think, wow, there's like beauty in languages to have all these different types of languages, right? And so forth. But think about the power there, there, there would be even today if the entire world spoke, spoke one language. Like the power. I remember years ago, on one of my first mission trips with some of the pastors, we went to, to Germany. And man, in Germany, I, you know, I needed a translator. But I remember one time I just went for a walk, and a friend of mine was like, I need contact lenses, but I don't, I, I can't. I was like, I'll go, I'll figure it out. And so I went into this little shop looking for contact lenses and the guy just stared at me and I was like, ojos, ojos. And I'm like, Spanish starts coming out and the guy's like looking. So I walked, I was like, I can't figure it out, man. <laughs> like, let's go. You know, it was frustrating. Not least that I found several, actually I found several guys on that trip that lived in the community who actually spoke Spanish and Italian and I was able to communicate. But do you imagine the power that would be, in the entire world, one language, one speech, all across. Well, this is what they did with it. This was what the, the, this pre-early earth did, right? The world began to grow, and they, they lost track of God's plan. And look what it says. The whole earth journeyed together. Instead of, instead of going out and spreading out, once again, you have people, mankind, rebelling against the Lord. And, and in that, right, because you see the consequence of unrepentant sin, pride begins to well up. And what do they do? All of a sudden, they build up in this, this unity. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us come and build, build a city united. They were coming together for one purpose, and one purpose was to rebel against the Lord under the leadership of Nimrod. Now, here's the thing. Nimrod, as I said earlier, was a wicked guy. He was actually, history tells us, he was actually married to a gal by the name of Semiramis. And this is how demented these people were. Semiramis was this kind of like one of the first practitioners of the occult and so forth. She was actually the granddaughter of Noah, Nimrod's mother and wife. Like, this is how insane these people were, were, were really becoming and how crazy they were. I mean, I mean, talk about the definition of, like, mama's boy. Like, I don't want to leave the home. I'll just marry you. Like, that's how twisted, like, they were. For us, I know it's like, oh, that's weird. But, again, this is early earth, right? This was not a holy communion or a holy unity or, or a holy community, if you will. The tower here of the Tower of Babel was a symbol of power and strength and worship and ultimately, again, a picture of human pride. Look what Revelation says about Babylon here, if you will. In the book of Revelation, chapter 17, this is what he calls her. In Revelation 17, 5, it says... She's kind of used as this picture of a woman. And it says, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. This is where they were going. And this place of the Tower of Babel became, became a symbol of rebellion. In fact, you could also say that the, the, the Tower of Babel was more of a ziggurat, right? With this place where they erected to worship false gods, or in their minds, where these gods would live. But once again, we find that this, again, is the consequence of unrepentant sin. Unrepentant sin produces in us a great sense of false spiritual pride. I mean, look what it says in verse 4, right? They wanted to make a name for themselves. What? Lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth, And that's exactly what God said. That was the point, right? God told them to scatter and to, and to multiply and to grow. And instead, because of their unrepentance, right, because of their pride, they went in direct rebellion against the Lord. And so God had to intervene. And I would say in the middle of their pride, God had to intervene because he loves mankind. And I really believe that about us, that because God loves us, God will intervene. I mean, look, look what he says there in verse 5 and 7. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all, all have one language. That is, what they begin to do now, right? Nothing. Nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. The Lord had to come down. Now this is just kind of a side note, but it's interesting that, that the last time God spoke to mankind was, man, be blessed, right? Go out and fill the earth and, and multiply it. The second time we hear of God speaking to mankind again, it's to squash the rebellion. It's to squash the rebellious heart, right? In Proverbs chapter 16 Verse 18, this is what it says. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. And that's the thing about sin and consequences and pride. Man, it rips us off from God's very best. It rips us off. And, and I, again, you know, many of us are prideful people. I know that I definitely have my moments of pride. But that pride oftentimes keeps us from being in the place that God designs for us and has for us. It keeps us from, from hearing the very voice of God at times. I've seen pride dis- destroy friendships and marriages and churches. And here we see real-life examples where, where God had to come in and rescue them. See, just like blessing and obedience can, can bring people together in the Lord, so too can pride right, bring people together. Just because there is togetherness, unity, and consensus doesn't mean it's right or right before the Lord. And so here in the Tower of Babel, right, for the sake of humanity and salvation for the earth, you know, God scattered them and God confounded their language, right? The idea was a failure of utterance. where so they, couldn't, they couldn't speak anymore. Like they were like building this tower. This is what we're going to do. And God says, really? That's what you're going to do? Boom. Now you're speaking Spanish. Now you're speaking German. Now you're speaking, you know, it's like Chinese. It was just like scattered them because they wouldn't do what God called them to do. It was to prevent their wickedness. It was a miracle. I like what Henry Morris, he says about this little section here. He's a Bible commentator on the book of Genesis. He says this, The nature of the miracle by which God confused the tongues is unknown, by virtue of the very fact that it was a miracle. The entity of language is indeed itself a miracle, right? There's absolutely no way in which the grunts and barks of animals could ever have evolved by natural processes into the articulate, symbolic, abstract language of humans. A mighty miracle of creation was required to endow man with this capacity. Likewise, another miracle of creation was required to create many new such phonologies all at once, presuming leaving the old intact, right, in the brain nerve, tongue complex of those who did not participate in the Babel Rebellion. It was a miracle. But it is interesting to understand that the beauty of all the languages that we have and the different ways we speak was actually a result of man's sin and man's pride, right? So then Babel would become or be known as the place of confusion. And isn't that what pride does? Sometimes it just brings confusion to the things of the Lord. It brings confusion to the things that God has for us. And here are these people left in rebellion. Well, look what happens next, right? We're going to skip a little bit forward. Go into, actually, chapter 11, verse 10. And for the next one, which is simply transitions of hope, right? Verse 10. So this is now the genealogy of Shem. And Shem was 100 years old, and he begot, or or facts had, Two years after the flood. And after he begot, our facts had, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. And as you read this, you'll notice that the age that people are living is slowly now just starting to go down and down and down. But we're going to focus now on verse 26. And look what happens here. Because this is where, in, in my mind, it gets really, really starts to get really exciting. Is that now Terah lived 70 years? He was a son of Shem. 70 years, and he begot. Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram, And his grandson Lot, and the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and his son Abram's wife. And they went out with them from the Ur of Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So now we have this focus on Shem. Why? Because Shem, in verse chapter 9, verse 26, he was the blessed of the Lord, right? He was one of the sons who, who covered the shame of his father's sin. And so now this transition time focuses on Terah. And why? Because from Terah now comes Abraham, who would become, or Abram, who would become Abraham, who would become the father of Israel. And it's one of the very reasons why we still, Like, look to Israel, because from this one man, spread all throughout the earth, right? But also from this one man would come Jesus, right? The Savior of the world, right? So Abram and Sarah married, and and even though they were half brother and half sister, this gets a little bit weird, too. But know this, that soon God's going to be like, okay, we're done. No one's marrying anyone's sister anymore. No one's brothers and sisters, you guys are done. Like, there is a transition time where all that begins to change, right? But the focus becomes Abram. It begins with the life of Abram. It begins because even though, man, there are, they are reaping consequences of Ham's sin, they're, they're in the middle of all this pride, God gets involved. And once again, you see that God is able to, to come in and, and to bring life out of all this mess. And we can focus now on the father, right, of the nation of Israel, one of the most famous characters in all the Bible. Like all these different, you know, uh, countries, especially in the Middle East, all refer, look to Abraham as this one starting point. Abraham, this man who would be called a friend of God, who, who, who would be, become the father of us all, who, who by faith believe that God right, was speaking to him that God would make him one day a father of all nations, right? He, by faith, trusted in him. And why is this so important to us today? Because Abram reminds us that even in the middle of rowdy consequences and pride and all these things, that God can still work, and there's always hope. There's always hope, right? There's, as, as long as we are living and breathing, man, there is always hope for God to intervene. And God is always able to take the ashes that we've created and bring beauty and life from them. And that's really what we see, and, and we're going to see, especially next week, in the life of Abram. Because Abram, again, reminds us that God can still work. And, and just like God would send Abram to a foreign land, you'll see next week, God would one day send his son Jesus into a foreign world, right? And follow the will of the Father to rescue us from sin so that, look at this, this, this prophecy would come true one day. In Zephaniah chapter 3, speaking of a, of a future time, God speaking prophetically to the children of Israel. Look what he says here. He says, Therefore wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy, right? Like that's coming. But then after that, he says, Then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. Like Abraham speaks of the start that one day God will redeem mankind and one day there will be once again one language that will all, like, speak and worship and serve the Lord together. God is going to restore what was taken away in the time in the beginning of all this craziness. And when we find that, and we find that God is able to do that, man, that means that today God is able to do that in us today. God is able to take our consequences. He's able to take our pride. And he's able to bring a transition into new life. That's why he said, right, in 2 Corinthians five seventeen, that if any man is in Christ and he's a new creation, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's never too late. Just how we see God's faithfulness in bringing Abram to this place. From consequences, from pride, to transitions of hope. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for this morning, Jesus. We thank you for your, your grace. And even as I look at these two chapters, Lord, we see... Just your unwavering patience in us, for us. When I look at these two chapters, I think, Lord, how there's so much mess. There's so much rebellion. There's so much craziness. And yet in the middle of all that, it just takes one person, one person to say yes to the Lord. Just like Abram. Abram, come, get away from your family and go to the place that I will show you. And so Lord, we thank you for that hope that you can give us today, this morning. And so we're going to, you know, sing this one song and during that time, it's a, to- it's, it's, it's a song of just response. It's a, a song of redemption. It's an opportunity to get right from the Lord. And I would say here this morning, if there's anyone this morning who's struggling, maybe in some of these areas, right? They've, they've, there's sin in their life. And there's sin that they're struggling with. And there's sin that, that they're being called, right, to, to repent. I mean, that God's always hard, is that when we blow it, He wants us to respond in repentance. And I believe this morning, maybe God might be speaking to a few people this morning. You know, in and, and a, and a, and a message like this, or just even this warning, it could be this, that God is calling you right now before pride comes in once we overlook that, that place of repentance, and our hearts start to get hard, we become prideful, and yet Proverbs warns us, man, if we're not careful, there's going to be destruction, or just loss of, of just fruitful life, and so take this opportunity. Hey there, this is Pastor Joe with Calvary San Juan. I hope you were blessed by our time together in God's Word. And if you'd like to hear more of our teaching from the teaching ministry of Calvary San Juan, you can go to our website at calvarysanjuan.com, or you can search for us on iTunes or Spotify. Just look for Calvary Church San Juan Island. On Sunday mornings, we stream our services live on Facebook, and of course on our website at calvarysanjuan.com. On Facebook, you can search for us by looking up Calvary San Juan, all caps live, Calvary San Juan live. And if you ever find yourself in Friday Harbor on a Sunday morning, you can worship with us in person at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. here on the San Juan Islands. God bless you and have a great day in the Lord.